Welcome to LifeBridge Online. Whenever it is that you're watching this, whatever you're doing, we are grateful once again that you are tuning in and allowing us to be part of your world. Thank you for letting us minister to you in this way. And to all the moms out there, happy Mother's Day uh, to those of you who might be listening. And to my mom, who hopefully she's going to listen to this, happy Mother's Day to you too. Uh, you are the best mother I've ever had, hands down. And I'm grateful for you, and I love you, Mom. If you are listening to this post-Mother's Day, then we pray that you were honored and that you felt love on your day of celebration. You know, moms, and they make the world go around. I, I Just today, um, we have a senior, and it, it's the end of the school year there's so much going on and she took off work today to do some things and you know senior pictures and flyers and graduation announcements and man that 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 statement was no more true in my life than it was today moms make the world go around and one of the truths of life is that as kids as children we we never understand the sacrifice and the love that parents make for their children in the moment that, that the sacrifice is being made as, as a youth, man, we just don't understand. We don't get it because we don't see the, the big picture of what is really taking place. You know, that's the sentiment, if you will. That, that's the setting of, of what happens in Jesus's first recorded teaching. Jesus is saying some things that his audience simply does not understand in the moment that the words are rolling off of his lips. They just, they don't get it. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, uh, he dedicates nine verses to living a happy, fortunate, fulfilled life. Uh, this is unlike anything that the audience has ever heard. We, we call them or refer to them as the Beatitudes. Then Jesus dedicates seven sentences to you with your happy life being a light that attracts others. He's like, if you're going to live this happy life, if you're going to have these Beatitudes, he, he, he talks about our life being salt and light to, to other people. But after that, his tone, if we can read into that, it, it seems to change. Jesus says some things that seem to challenge the current day teachers of the law. Jesus teaches about the law, and, and he tells us in, in a few verses that he didn't come to, to get rid of the law. He didn't come to get... To, to remove it, to, to replace it with something different. As a matter of fact, he came to fulfill the law. Then he says in Matthew 5, 20, and, and we're going to be uh, in this section the next uh, a few minutes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. If you have your Bibles, turn there because that's where we're going to be uh, in the following verses. He says this, I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of the heaven. So, so I want you to picture this. All right, I want you to grasp this. Jesus is, is, is teaching. It's a huge audience. Uh, there's, there's common folk, and then there's the Pharisees. There's a few of those sprinkled in the crowd. They kind of 
are, are observing this new teacher. Jesus talks about some things, uh, how to hit, live a happy life, a fortunate life. He, he goes through that. Then he talks about um, you know, being salt and light. And then the tone just changes completely. And he starts talking about the law. He starts talking about this, this doctrine, if you will, of, of everything that is important to the Pharisees, to the religious people of that day. And at the end of this section, he looks at the audience and he tells the crowd that unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to get into heaven if your righteousness is not better than theirs. So let's talk about this for a minute. What is righteousness? So just so we're we're clear, we have a we're on the same page as, as we move forward. Righteousness is an adherence to what is required. Um, it, it certainly applies to God. It can apply to, to most any uh, standard of living. But when we think of righteousness, that's a Bible word. It, it, that's where it, the root of it, that's where it came from. An adherence to what is important. And so Jesus challenges us common folk, you and I. He says that our adherence to what is required from God has to exceed that of the teachers of the law. Our adherence to what is required has to exceed that of the teachers of the law or we don't get in to heaven. I mean, wow! Can you imagine being on that mountainside and hearing those words? I mean, think about the religious leaders of that day. I mean, they were just that, very religious. Uh, they tithed everything. I mean, they were known for their tithes. They, they flaunted their tithing. Uh, they tithed everything down to the very herbs from their garden. I mean, can you imagine? Like, I, I'm growing some rosemary and some dill. And, and you're sitting there and you're, you're okay, I've, I've, I've got four sprigs, so how much of this do I have to, how many of these leaves do I have to take over here? And counting off the leaves and taking them and offering them to the temple. I mean, that, that's, that's how dedicated to the tithe they really were. They prayed three times a day. And, and they didn't pray like, oh, I'm on my way to work in the car, I'm going to turn the radio down, or I'm in a crisis moment. Like they, they paused, they stopped, they drew attention to themselves, and they prayed three times a day. And they fasted two times each week. And, and we're not talking about like, hey, I'm going to bed at 8 o'clock you know, in the evening and getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And in that eight-hour window, uh, we, we fast. Now, we're, we're talking you know, 24, 36-hour periods of going without any food. They were extremely religious. And Mark Moore asked the question, is it really possible for you and I to exceed the righteousness of the most faithful faction of Jesus' day? Is it possible for you and I to adhere to a higher level than those guys? And you know, if you stop the sermon that Jesus is teaching, if you stop it right there, 
man, it, it seems pretty disappointing. It seems pretty bleak, actually. But then Jesus brings up six teachings from the Mosaic Law. Like this is what happens next. He brings up six teachings from the Mosaic Law that the religious teachers think that they've mastered. I mean, he brings up these six things, and they're just, they're kind of some highlights. They're some big ticket items. He brings up these six things that they think that they've kind of got a handle on. Anger, adultery, divorce, vows, revenge, and then love. And, and we're going to get into that, but here's what I believe is happening. Jesus is flipping the script on everything that the Pharisees knew and taught. He's taking the importance of the God and man relationship, and Jesus is taking it from religion-based to relationship-based. He's taking it back to the very thing that God desired in the garden, and that was to live in relationship with man. Jesus is taking it back to the very thing that God hoped would happen in the garden when Eve came on the scene, and that man and woman would live together in relationship. And if you get to Jesus and you get to, to his teachings and you follow through with that, his emphasis is always on relationships. And one of the things that we say is it, you really should look at the Bible especially the teachings of Jesus, through the lens of relationships. What is Jesus saying? You pick the text. What is Jesus saying here about relationships? He talks about relationships with God, right? Like that's a major emphasis. It's one of the, it's the single greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The religious leaders, um, Man, they've got that down. They, they, I mean, they think they have that down. They, they, they believe that the relationship with God, based on all the activity and all the things that they do, they believe that they have that down. So Jesus is talking about relationship with God and relationship with one another, which the religious leaders are not concerned with. Like they're concerned with the one with God. Like that's important to them, but they're not really concerned with the relationship with one another. Look at these six teachings. Uh, in Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus talks about anger. And he says that you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. And so as we look through these, this is how we want to do this. We want to look through this through the lens of relationship. What is Jesus saying about relationships? You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. Under the Old Testament law, as long as I did not murder, anger isn't an issue. Man, I could gossip, I could slander, and I know those are sins, but, but it, it's okay. It, 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 I can get away with it. I can be mad as fire. But until I commit murder, hey, I'm still good. I mean, think about this from a relational standpoint. I could damage you. I could hurt you. I could, I could slander. I could gossip. I could hurt 
your reputation, but as long as I don't murder you, all is good. But then look at verse 22, what Jesus says. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Think about anger for a minute. What does anger do? Anger drives a wedge between people. Anger causes us to, to act irrationally. Do, do you know one of the top three reasons people leave the church? It's because of other people. It's because there's anger in some form or fashion of what happens out of anger. People leave the church. Christians leave the church because of this very thing. And we're upset and we're hurt. We have tiffs with one another. You're not loving your neighbor as Jesus loves you when you get angry. So you can see Jesus is focusing on relationship. It's not just about murder. It's about what drives murder. So don't even get angry. Learn to control that. Because when you get angry, you cannot love other people as I have loved you. Then he moves on to adultery. Look at what he says in verse 27. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Well, every single one of us knows who understands adultery. Adultery hurts relationships. Adultery will drive a wedge in relationships. It, it, it has a ripple effect that goes down and can have a generational effect. But Jesus says in verse 28, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men, does that one step on any toes? Hey, I didn't sleep with her, the, the, the Pharisees would say. I, I, it's no big deal. All I did was gaze upon her. But Jesus comes along and he says that, Man, we kind of devalue our wives. We devalue the women that we lust over and we gaze upon. Lust kills marriages. And it's also where the final act of adultery begins. The religious leaders say, it's no big deal. We didn't commit adultery. We didn't cross the line. But Jesus comes along and says, you know what? There's really not even a line there. Don't even look upon a woman with a lustful eyes. Then he flows right into to divorce. Verse 31, he's, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. Deuteronomy 24 is the, is the main Old Testament teaching on divorce. And all a man has to do is to come up with some indecency. Write a note and then send her on her way. I just have to come up with something. I just have to come up with some reason that divorce is worthy, whether it happened or not. And then I write the note and we send it on. We announce it to, to the village elders, to the family that's in, you know, that the wife came from. And we send her on her way. And that's, that's the divorce process. But Jesus says... I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. 
Jesus comes along and says, by divorcing her, unless she's unfaithful, you cause her to commit adultery. The, the religious experts, or just men, they didn't care a thing about the women they would divorce, putting them in this situation where their purity and their reputation would be ruined. They didn't care a thing about it. For whatever reason, I want out of this marriage. I will write the note. I will come up with the reason, and I will kick you out to the curb. You would have to be taken care of by your family. You would be a burden. I would be shunning my responsibility to, to take care of you, to provide for you, to do all those things. I would then be ruining your reputation and your purity by sending you out to be taken care of, to be taken advantage of by someone else. And here's the thing, church, as we get into all of these You'll notice that Jesus is addressing the crowd and he says to them, you have heard it said. Well, they've heard it said from the, from the mouths of the very teachers and the Pharisees who were in the audience. You have heard it said, but I say Jesus comes along. Take vows, for example, on verse 33. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. This, this can get complicated. Mark Moore explains it like this. Oaths are an attempt to differentiate situations that require honesty from those that do not. In normal situations, we can fudge the truth or lie outright. But under oath, a magic wand is waved that requires us to be more moral than normal. Jesus pointed out what nonsense that is. Either we're honest or we aren't. Oaths gave a false impression of trustworthiness. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, you must not break your vow. You must not... You must carry out the vows that you make to the Lord. But Jesus then comes along and says, whoa, 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 whoa. I say to you, do not even make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. And, and, and that's where it kind of gets a little complicated and, and what the vow means and, and, and what we could actually uh, cash in, what we could actually you know, say uh, we, we have, you know, I bet $150 million, you know, some absurd example like that when we know that is not true. People would make these vows and they would make these elaborate vows based on the throne in heaven that God sits on. Yeah, it didn't work. Jesus is saying, let your yes, just a simple yes, I will, or a no, I won't. Anything beyond that isn't trustworthy. Anything beyond that is from Satan. This whole thing about vows, this is about building trust and commitment. This is about when you say you'll do something, that you're actually going to do it. When you say, I'll participate in this event or this activity, or I'll be there at this time, then you need to do what you say you will do. 
Because when you do this, you build trust and it shows that there is value in the relationship. And nothing hurts a relationship worse than not being able to trust people who we are in relationship with. Nothing drives a wedge quicker between two people in a relationship when we say one thing and then we don't carry it out. It builds up and nobody likes it. It doesn't matter what your personality is. It doesn't matter what kind of person you are. No one likes it when we are told something and then people do not follow through. Which leads right into the next one. Revenge. Jesus is telling the audience, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Man, the Pharisees love this one. Who am I kidding? Human nature. You and I, we love this one. An eye for an eye. Man, you wrong me. I'm legally allowed to wrong you back. If I get taken advantage of, man, I could get my retaliation. And, and here's the thing about this law. This, this is an interesting twist on this law. This was not about getting even. This was actually about protecting the person who did the first harm, the person who did the first egregious act, so that I don't react in anger and do more to you than what you originally did to me. I mean, that's the basis of this law, but it's, it's still all about retaliation. And, and so Jesus comes on and he says, hey, I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you, turn the cheek. And we, we don't want to hear that. We, 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 we like the first part. We like the retaliation part. But Jesus is talking about relationships. He says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the others, turn the other cheek to expose that to them. This is a move of humility. Culture says, nope, this is a move of weakness. But Jesus says, be willing to suffer loss yourself rather than cause suffering for someone else. It, it, it's proven, psychologists will tell us, that violence is actually born out of weakness in most situations. And it's the strong man who can love and suffer hurt. It's the weak man who thinks only of himself and hurts others to protect himself. So you can see, it takes someone grounded in their faith. It takes someone who's living a greater purpose to actually have the humility that when they're wronged, they're willing to turn the other cheek. They're willing to suffer harm and loss themselves than retaliate. I mean, that, that's what Jesus is asking of us. You can see how one is going to hurt. It's going to hinder relationship building. But Jesus' model, what he requires, hey, that's, that's going to build relationships. 
And, and then he brings it to, to this, this one, love your enemies. And th this is foreign to us. Like this is one of those teachings in the Bible that just it's hard to wrap our mind around. And it's because he's talking about loving your enemies. And, and he says, you've heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You know, the audience, the audience listening to Jesus, they knew a thing or two about this command. The love your neighbor, I mean, that's, that's about the other Israelites. That, that, that's, that's the people who were like you, people who shared your heritage, your nationality, your beliefs, your God. But hate your enemy? Like this, this was ingrained in them to hate the enemy. I mean, their entire, the Israelites' entire history, they had enemies. And, and, and they were enslaved, they were oppressed, and God allowed them to, for these things to take place. And so it's always ingrained in them that they are to hate their enemies, hate the oppressors, those who have ruled over you, those who are different from you, those who have different beliefs. But Jesus says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. Love, church, it's an act of the will. It's not just some emotion that, that we feel when, when we hold our baby child, our newborn for the very first time, or, or something significant happens in life, or, or, or that cute blonde that you've got your eye on. Love is an act of the will. Love is a choice that we get to make every single day. We get to choose who we are going to love. And Jesus says to, to his audience, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But then this is interesting. And this is, this is a point of emphasis that I, I think that all of us, need to pause and reflect on. In verse 46, he's expounding upon what he just said. He says, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. You see, what he's saying that if we only love the lovable, if we only love those who love us back, there's really no reward in that. Our love, especially our love for enemies, praying for those who persecute us, our love can win people over. And so Jesus gave several reasons for this uh, admonition. One, this, this love is a mark of maturity. It's proving that we are sons of the Father and not just little children. And Jesus goes on to tell us that in the next couple of verses. And so when we're able to love our enemies, when we're able to love those who persecute us, those who harm us, this is a mark of maturity. This is a mark of spiritual growth taking place in, in, our, in our lives. Hey, the second thing, it, it's God-like. Being able to love those who, who persecute you, and that, 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 that is very much like the Father. 
I mean, he, he has enemies every single day all around the world. People that absolutely hate people who believe in him, people who hate God, hate the existence of God. You know that there is a movement in, in our country and, and, and around the world to even remove all forms of God, the word God, and not even bring it up anywhere. And God's like, I still love these people. And so when we're able to love our enemies, it shows maturity. It shows that we are becoming like him. And you can see what this does to relationships. We're not going to win every every one of our enemies. We're not going to win every single person who persecutes us, every person that comes against us because of him. We may not win them over. But we, in doing so, become more like him. And so that's the, that's the six things that Jesus brings up. And he, and he tells us, you've heard it said, do this, but I say do this. So this is a revolutionary teaching by Jesus. In every way, this makes relationships more valuable. Jesus is removing the, the checklist mentality that the Pharisees created you know, by how they taught. You know what I'm talking about there. I've, I've got to do this, and 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 I've got to do this. And as long as I do these things, as long as I don't commit murder, as, as, as long as I divorce the correct way, as, as long as I you know, say the right thing in my vows, in, in my oaths, as long as I do these things, hey, I am a moral person. I'm deeply religious. But our faith isn't about a religion. This thing that we've entered into, the reason we gather together, the reason that you're listening to this thing, this is not about a religion, but this is all about relationship. How I love others is indirect reflection of my love for God. And then this part of this next transition, this section of the sermon it's wrapped up with this verse, verse 48. Jesus tells the audience, this is crazy, but be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, so he begins this section by saying, hey, unless, unless your righteousness is that of the, great, of, of the Pharisees, of the religious leaders, you're not even going to get into heaven. And then he wraps it up, hey, but be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Please don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He, he, we don't want you. He doesn't want you to go strive for perfection. No, that, that brings it right back down to the checklist mentality that the Pharisees kept. This is not a call to moral perfection, church. Rather, the word perfect, it, it means mature. In the current context, Jesus is saying that we should love as holistically, uh, maturely, purely as God does if we want to carry out his agenda in our culture. For Jesus, and don't miss this right here, for Jesus, unconditional love is the heart of morality. And in our Core 52 uh, journey that we're on, that's the topic that we're talking about today, deeper morality. And Jesus, unconditional love is at the heart of morality. As our heart changes, morality follows. He's like, I don't want you to 
worry about checking all the boxes of what it takes to be a, a moral person. I don't want you to check the box of what it means to, to, to try to strive for a deeper morality. I want your heart to change. Because see, these, these six things that we talked about, anger, adultery, divorce, they're, they're, they're things that Jesus modeled throughout his ministry in his life. Jesus isn't concerned about you checking the boxes. He's concerned about your heart because he knows when your heart is in the right place. When your heart changes, the morality takes care of itself. So what does it take for the heart to change? Well, two quick things. I'm almost done. There's two quick things I want to share with you and let you, let you ponder these. I think these two things are really important for us when it comes to the heart. In, in Jesus' uh, beginning of his ministry, he calls some disciples. He calls these men. And this is really where his, his ministry is beginning. And, and he says to these fishermen, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Like, like drop the nets, leave the boats, leave the parents, leave, leave the family business. Come and follow me and I will will make you. Church, the heart change happens. It starts with us dropping our stuff. And I don't think that Jesus is asking every single one of us to walk away from our jobs right now. Like, like I don't think that's it, but dropping our stuff, dropping the stuff that gets in the way. And this is a daily, it's an ongoing thing. As, as we drop our stuff faithfully, routinely, he will make us. I mean, that's what he says. Come and follow me and I will make you. Jesus is the one who is going to transform us. So my part, okay, my part is to drop my stuff and follow Jesus. And I'm not going to get it right. I'm, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revert back to old ways. I'm going to struggle. But he's asking us to drop our stuff again and come follow one more time. And as we do this faithfully, his part is to make us. He will transform us. How's that happen? Well, it happens. Our hearts are changed when our thinking is changed. Yeah, isn't that crazy to think about? Like the, the emotional center of who we are, our hearts, is impacted by our mind our thinking, our, our ability to reason. You know, Romans 12 tells us that man, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. You know, heart change. We are transformed as the how we think and the process of how we think is changed. Heart change happens through the renewal of our mind. What am I taking into my mind? What, what am I allowing is, is it CNN? Is it Fox News? Is it ESPN? Is it primetime television? Is, is it smutty, off-color stuff that is on the internet? I mean, whatever it is, what is it that I'm allowing into my mind? Heart change happens through the renewal of the mind. And so back to the first question we asked. Is it really possible to exceed the righteousness of the most faithful faction of Jesus' day?
a church, I hope you're willing to surrender your life, to drop your stuff, and allow Jesus to change your heart. Till next week.